The Guardian. Hello, I'm Aditya Chakraborty and this is The Business Podcast. Coming up this week, the IMF warns that a new global financial crisis could be on the cards unless European leaders act decisively to deal with the Greek debt crisis. But what are the options and how bad could it get? We'll hear from the Observer's economics editor, Heather Stewart, and our banking expert, Jill Trainer. Also this week, measuring the effectiveness of international aid. Could part of the answer lie in randomised trials? We'll hear from the authors of an influential new book, Poor Economics. When the price of rice goes down, people eat less rice, not more rice. But first, as the crisis in Greece worsens, the IMF has given dire warnings of what's to come if the rest of Europe doesn't get its act together. George Papandreou's government narrowly survived a confidence vote this week, but it faces a huge task in passing the austerity budget demanded by Brussels. Meanwhile, in Athens, where I've been this week, Greeks are emptying their bank accounts and buying gold as demonstrators fill the streets to denounce their government. And there's even greater resentment of the EU in what was formerly the most Euro-enthusiastic country of the lot. Heather Stewart, let's begin with you. What does yesterday's vote change, if anything? Well, it's only one hurdle on the way to the release of, of the latest tranche of the Greek bailout. So it's it's very much not the end of the crisis. It was a hurdle that Papandreou had to overcome to show his creditors, the IMF and the EU, the Eurozone, that he has political support for what he wants to do. He now faces another vote over his austerity package. And even then in the longer term, although that should help the IMF and the EU to release the the last tranche of of the previous bailout, there are then extremely complex talks that have to take place over another bailout for Greece. So this is very much not the end of the story. Jill, what are people saying in markets this morning? It's calmer today. The reality is I'm not sure anybody really thought he was going to lose the vote on Tuesday. That was, and you could see that on Monday afternoon because actually the markets ended higher, US ended up. And even through most of the day on Tuesday, it felt like that. The reality is, it's this point that Heather's making, is that this is just not the end of the story. And the and sort of part of the problem, and also part of the relief about this story, is it seems to have been going on forever. So in some ways, the fact that it's taking forever also means that some people think that the so-called Lima moment might not actually be as bad as feared. Well, I want to ask you about this, because are you a Lehman moment? There's a debate in the markets between is this, if Greece does default, will it be a Lehman moment, such as we saw in autumn 2008, in which markets effectively froze up in panic? Or people who say, well, actually, Greece is quite a small economy, the exposure to the rest of the world to Greece is actually not that big. Which camp do you fall into? Well, I'll tell you what people tell me. I mean, the people in the Lehman camp essentially say, this happens, you know, Greek defaults, then the Irish people will also demand that their bailouts improved, made easier for them. The Portuguese then complain that they want to change theirs. And the house of card begins. And that while we in the UK can sit here saying our exposure to Greek banks is minor, actually our exposure to the Irish banking sector, the Portuguese, you know, it's a different story. And uh, those who say it isn't a Lehman moment cite the fact that one, Greece is small, and two, that unlike Lehman's, which actually collapsed overnight. I mean, put yourself back in that position. It collapsed overnight. The thing about this is that if you are a bond dealer or a bank, the reality is you must have had time, even if you can't get out of the position you're in, to know you've got the position. And so the, so the, so the Lehman deniers, if you like, sit in that camp. 
and your actual position of that elegant tour of the arguments? I think that the reality is that the, it's difficult to be a Lehman denier only because if you think about what started the credit crunch, which then led to the collapse of Lehman, what, a year a bit later, actually was a tiny thing. It was three little hedge funds that couldn't price their, their books. And I sort of think it might not be a Lehman moment right now, but the Lehman moment could just be a bit further. So maybe I'm in the Bear Stearns camp. Who knows? Anyway, it just feels that complacency is the wrong place to be. Heather. I agree with that. I, I think it's more of a slow motion car crash, probably. I think you don't get a, a moment, you know, which is the moment where everything cracks. But you, you could get, you know, mixing my metaphors, a series of sort of dominoes that fall, which starts with a Greek default, which everybody thinks is inevitable. And part of the problem is we do have a lot more knowledge, I think, about banks' direct exposures because of the information the Bank for International Settlements has been giving us. We know quite a lot about banks in different countries in their direct exposures to sovereign bonds, we know a lot less about indirect exposures through things like CDSs, you know, banks which have been writing insurance for companies doing business in Greece, for example. And, you know, somebody said to me, Lana said to me last week, it's less like a Lehman moment, it's more like an AIG moment. So AIG was sitting on all these quite complex insurance products. You know, you get all these legal questions then about who owes what to whom because, you know, you've, you've insured against a Greek default. And, of course, any of these things any of this sort of financial innovation, the British banks are always in it up to their necks because we have a, a, a comparative advantage section. in financial <laughs> innovation, <laughs> as we know. Yeah, which hangs around our necks like a millstone. Um, default is one thing, Jill. You've got a piece in today's paper about how Greece could leave the euro. What's the talk about an exit? The, the point of the piece was really to discuss ways that you could potentially leave the euro. I'm not sure that I'm I stress I'm not sure I'm advocating that Greece should leave the euro. And actually, the people I spoke to yesterday mm. weren't advocating mm. it either. But, it's but what about the possibilities? I mean, you could see, you know, look, you can see why, if you're somebody living in Greece, that you might think, why don't we leave the euro? We can let our currency devalue. We can become massively competitive. We can start exporting. In practice, it's not that easy to do. The reality is what people were saying about when I was asking them, how would Greece leave the euro? What would you do? They first of all say, well, obviously, there'd be the banking system would collapse. So you'd obviously have to nationalise the banks. You'd have to close the cash machines. You'd have to restructure all the debt. I mean, it is not a simple process. I mean, it's, it's been done before. Remember, the ruble block broke up. Uh, you know, there was the Nordic currency uh, arrangement that took place until the First World War that lasted about 30 odd years. So, I mean, it's not it's not impossible, but it's just wasn't designed, let's face it, Nobody, it was never written into the sort of way the euro was created for it to happen. But I just wonder that it seems to me that some of those consequences about the state of the Greek banking sector, for example, follow from a default, even if you stay in the euro. And if if you default, at least if you default and leave the euro, then you can do a devaluation and you have some chance of, you know, as Argentina did, for example, and you have some chance of, of... you know, at some point, clambering your way out of the crisis. If, if you stay in, you know, the one hope for sparking some economic growth is not there, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, the banking the banking sector would be a huge mess if Greek, Greece defaulted anyway, which almost everyone thinks it, it will have to. Let's be frank, the Greek banking sector is in a bit of a mess anyway. Indeed. I mean, we all know that there have been inflows into, into, into Cypriot banks through the crisis because they're perceived to be safer. You know, there's some suggestion Greeks are buying gold you know, because that feels real and safe and is a good store of value. I mean, if you were in Greece and, you're, and, and you've got savings, this is, must be a time to be... Yeah, it would be pretty surprising if there wasn't a bit of a bank run going on, wouldn't it, with people tucking assets away in other countries. I mean, it would be pretty... Extraordinary. Well, just, just on the subject of foreign banks, um, 
I'm looking at the, the, the table we've got in today's paper of exposure of foreign banks to Greece. And at the top is the Belgian bank Dexia. And I, I've got two questions for you, Jill. One is, one is why is it in, in all of these big sort of financial messes, the name Dexia is always pretty near, the top of the, pretty near the top of the deck of the cards? And two, does it matter if Dexia is affected, considering the fact it's in a state which has no government? Belgium did get involved in bailouts before because obviously it owned bits of Fortis when that had to be bailed out because of the great ABN takeover that killed RBS. Does it matter there isn't a government? Well, we all know that indecision is one thing markets can't stand. Um, and so potentially it would matter if Dexia got into, in, into trouble. But I don't think it matters which bank gets into trouble these days and governments or not. You know, people don't want to lose their money. So... And Heather, another unscripted and slightly fumbling question to you. Listen, it strikes me that one of the things that's most interesting about the Greek situation is that in the past month, what you've effectively had is uh, the interposition of the Greek voters, the Greek people. So before a month ago, you could have said that what what the game was was between the IMF, the Eurozone and the Greek government, between Costas Pan, uh, George Papandreou. And then all of a sudden you get these huge mass protests and everything grinds to a halt. Do you think what the situation in Greece, where the voters, where the people are effectively saying we can't take more austerity, do you think that's an exception within Europe and actually in places like Ireland, the Irish just basically shut up and take their take their punishment? Or do you think it's the beginning of a wave of protests that you could see happening, in, well, you are being to see happening in Spain, where they haven't even got the same kind of austerity, and in Portugal and so on? To be honest, I have found it quite surprising for quite a while that there was, that there seemed to be not very much dissent about some of these programmes, particularly, you know, in Ireland, for example, what's really happened is that the taxpayer has bailed out the banking sector to an extraordinary degree. You know, the banking sector has, and the private sector creditors have walked away with everything that they recklessly lent, you know, and the taxpayers left bearing the burden. So, you know, there's a pretty strong political argument there, it seems to me, that wasn't being made. So I'm not at all surprised. There's only a certain amount of pain. We saw this in Latin America. We've seen it in, in Asia. You know, if you remember people on the streets of Argentina banging their pots and pans and overthrowing the government, you know, and saying, tell the IMF to stick it, which Argentina eventually did. You know, it, it was, there's, there was always only going to be a certain amount that, that taxpayers and, and, you know, voters and school kids and whatever could take. And, it, I, I, you know, it's not surprising people are out on the streets in Greece. And I think Ireland are behind. They had an election. They overthrew a government. You know, they, they were making a choice to say, you know, we want things to be done differently. So far, that government seems to have got very little traction in getting a better deal from the IMF, partly because everyone's distracted with what's going on in Greece. But... Surely the Irish are not going to put up with this forever either, I would have thought. Hmm. Um, and final question to you both. The, the, one of the surprises from last night's uh, conference vote was that the leader of the main Conservative opposition, the New Democracy Party, came out and said austerity isn't working, which was the first time you saw a mainstream politician c- come out and say it in such emphatic terms. Mm. Does that change the terms of the debate within Greece? Heather, you first. I suppose it does, because there was, there was a consensus. There was a feeling, it was that feeling that the political class were discussing things on a kind of higher level with the IMF and their sort of friends at the ECB and whatever. Um, and there was a whole separate debate going on. You know, it was it was from the grassroots that the opposition came. But actually, you know, the more you start to think about these things, you more, the more you realise that, that austerity is self-defeating even in its own terms. You know, it's driving the Greek economy into a, a worse situation, which makes it harder to tackle the deficit problem. So, you know, it, it, the fact that that is now being voiced as part of the political debate, I mean, I think it, it does change things a bit. Although, of course, he won his confidence vote and you know, as far as I can see, he's expected to get his austerity measures through as well. So we'll, we'll have to see whether that, that voice kind of grows. 
I mean, it's great for people to say austerity, austerity doesn't work. I also think they've got to have another strategy. I think it's easy for us all to say austerity doesn't work. But we've all got to find a ways to live within our means or at least if we've got a lot of debt to keep being able to repay it and find a way to grow our economies. And our, the, the reality is somebody needs to find a way to get the Greece economy to grow, to get taxes in from everyone <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and get its confidence back. And that's the people that should be winning the debate in Greece. Heather Stewart and your trainer there. You can keep up with this story as it develops and plenty more analysis on our website at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, what the rich owe the poor, that is the developed world against the developing world, is an old debate. And austerity measures in the West are put in perspective when compared with the hundreds of millions of people living on less than a dollar a day. But the debate rages on in Britain, even more so now that the government has ring-fenced its relatively small aid budget from cuts affecting most other departments. With taxpayers' money being sent abroad as aid in straitened times, there's a clamour, especially from backbench Tory MPs, to know how well it's working. Obajit Banerjee and Esther Deflo from MIT claim to be able to do just that. Their approach to development economics involves borrowing from an approach we're more used to from physics and the men in white lab coats. Randomised trials in which one test group gets an anti-poverty remedy, the other doesn't, and conclusions are drawn by keeping other variables under control as much as possible. It's led to them being labelled random Easters by their peers, and the approach is catching on, especially amongst policymakers. Now, Obergis and Esther are receiving rave reviews for their new book, Poor Economics, and they join me now. Obergis, let's begin with one of your most interesting experiments. What does it take to get parents to immunise a baby in India? We were sort of, we had been asked by by this NGO in Udaipur, which is in Rajasthan in India, to help them improve uh, healthcare in the area. And one of the things we discovered in the process that though they had been in the area for 40 years and we've been kind of bouncing around there for a few years as well. Neither of us knew much about it. So there was a, it, was a, it was a good, in a sense, it was a tabula rasa. And so we went ahead and kind of spent quite a long time um, just collecting data, figuring out what's the problem. And when we, in the process, I think one of the things we discovered was that immunization was a huge problem. The full immunization rates, full immunization sort of defined in this context to be the five shots that you're supposed to get in your first year, where by our relatively careful calculation, 6%, or actually less than 6% at that point. Even when we t- now, when we tell this number to people, a lot of people's reaction is, you couldn't, that couldn't possibly be true. So then there was a question, what do you do about it? And there we, again, we really didn't know. So there were basically two views. One view came from kind of the establishment people and the government people even who said that, well, you know, the problem is on the delivery system. There's just not, you know, these these people who work in these health centers, they don't show up. So you get discouraged and you don't actually manage to find them. So you never get the children immunized. The other side were the kind of the NGO 
community there. And they were much more on saying, no, it's it's not that. It's these people have traditional beliefs, and they're going to... They, they just don't want this stuff. This is all modern gobbledygook, and they live in a traditional uh, hermetic world of their own. And what, what are you trying to do? Give them these uh, shots. They don't need them. They don't want them. And just to make it clear, these are free shots, which could potentially save children's lives. Right. They, these are free shots, which surely uh, save children's lives. And I so what did, you, what did you do? Tell us. So we went with the view that let's try things out. We, so one thing we did was we worked with the NGO to assure that every village once a month will have an absolutely certain chance of getting their children immunized. And that... If, and what we had done was, as we often do, we had randomized the uh, villages where this happened. So we randomly chosen villages where this would happen and compared them with villages where you know not the traditional, the existing system was going. And then we could just compare them because these villages were just randomly chosen. So there was no difference between them to start with. And then you could just look at them and see which one was doing better. And you could see that there was a, at the, by that time, in the place, places that had no intervention by us, uh, the immunization rate had gone up from, I think, 4% to 6% by then. And as soon as the delivery becomes reliable, it goes up to about 17.5%. So that that was big, but that's good news. But you brought lentils into the equation. Right. (laughs) But then there was the other bit, which is we also wanted to know about, you know, is it really the case that these people who, you know, the 80-some percent who didn't show up are these people who really have these very strong traditional beliefs and that's why they're not showing up or is there something else going on one way to look at that was to say let's give them a small gift for do making this occasion memorable if you like you know if the parent mother or the father brings in a child he gets a kilo of lentils to take home that kind of makes the occasion a bit more pleasant than just taking a crying child home and even even in india a kilo of lentils doesn't cost very much money it's quite common it's not like it's a massive thing no it's not a massive thing it's not it's not in other words this was deliberately chosen to be something that was wouldn't change your mind if you had an extremely deep seated belief that this is going to be the wrong thing for you to do it's 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 a trivial gift in that within that traditional it's the equivalent of getting a pencil when you visit a bank exactly okay and when you offer that the immunization rate on top of the assured delivery you, the immunization rate goes from, as I said, with a short delivery, you get about 17.5%. With th- this additional bit, you get about 37.5%. So you went from uh, just under 6% immunization of children to nearly 40% just by giving parents a bag, a small bag of lentils. Well, and assuring delivery. The combination was important. And in fact, as a result, and that's sort of a, in a sense, it's a, it's an underestimate of of how big the impact was because there were people who came from other villages to get immunized at this place. I mean, if you look at the neighboring villages, the immunization rate there is up to 28%. So these are just people coming from the entire area to get immunized in this particular village. So these people were not in our experiment, but of course we had no reason not to, not to actually immunize them. This is all good. So it went up to, I think, 28% for those people in the neighboring areas. 
Esther, um, you at the beginning of your book, you talk about this big debate that's been going on for quite a long time within development economics between the likes of Billy Stilley. He says there's nothing you can do. These people should just, you know, trade. And if we have free markets, they'll be fine. And then the, the likes of Jeff, Jeff Sachs, you say, well, actually, what you need to do is have one big heave and you just bung a load of money and bung a load of resources at this problem and it, it will go away. Where do your experiments lead you on that on that debate? It depends uh, on what dimension of the debates. I think one of the key takeaways from, from maybe from our book is that if you can predict someone's answers to every question from where they stand ideologically, probably you'll get some wrong answers. So on the one hand, on the, we are very much with Jeff Sachs on the moral side that one should uh, care about this issue and uh, um, the rich world has the, the means and uh, the responsibility for spending money on, on on people in the poor world and the rich people in the poor world have responsibility for spending money on their poorest citizen. So in that sense, we are very much believers that, that resources can be spent and furthermore that they can be spent effectively. Where we do differ is uh, that we don't think that the world, policymakers, international community, anyone has the answers, has all the answers today on how the money should be spent. And we, so where we do join uh, uh, Billisterly often is is some level of, you know, a lot of this money that is being spent on the poor, not only aid actually, but also the, the country's own money is, is wasted. In, in our view, it's not often wasted because of some great conspiracy against the poor or, or corruption necessarily. It's often wasted simply because not enough energy and care has gone into trying to identify the real problem on the grounds and not enough maybe humility has gone into um, trying things out before scaling them up. But nevertheless, resources are wasted. So, And we think that one could stop this waste by uh, spending the time and the effort of figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And then the money could be spent even more effectively, which I think would also increase the support that it, for spending this kind of money. Abhijit, um you uh, were talking earlier about how policymakers would be attracted to the random Easter method because it gives them quite tangible results to quite concrete questions. Do you see any pitfalls in all this excitement about randomistas? I'm thinking about what Esther said about microcredit. I mean, there's a tendency, and I think you're absolutely right, there's a tendency to, for every kind of big new idea that comes along in development economics that this is, this is it, this is what's going to answer the, the big question, the big existential question. Do you see that you, you know, the kind of work that you're associated with, it, I now see it as being sort of talked about so much that there's a risk it might turn into the next silver bullet, which will then fail. I guess I'm not, too worried about that, let me say. I, I'm not too worried about that because actually, in a sense, the academic incentives are very much to not to, to the internal discourse of any any field is always to already start challenging an idea even before it, in a <laughs> sense, gets to fruition. So I, I don't feel that. I think by the time, I mean, I think the danger is more that, in a sense, the 
the kind of the boring nitty-gritty aspects of doing lots of experiments won't happen because in a sense the next new fad will come before it, it, the course of this one's run out because i think that the the, the i think the bigger danger is that you know this really once you accept that questions deserve to be answered at this kind of relatively micro narrow level there are millions of questions right and you you its question is whether we will have enough sustained interest in answering a lot of them or will people move on and say well we've done that that kind of that was uh, randomista stuff that was the the 2010s and now we are into some new 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 thing uh, before we've actually answered the kinds of questions we can answer. Uh, so I, I'm more worried about, I think, there's a natural urge of all academics to move on to the next new thing. But Esther, I mean, you've seen uh, in your time as development e- economist that you've seen how new ideas get taken up sprung upon by by politicians who say this is this is it and they get wildly overexcited and in the end it creates these false expectations which any method cannot meet yeah what is very different though about something like a method which is you know run experiments as opposed to thing an idea like macro credit a a policy solution is that well a policy solution is a policy solution it's uh it can't be applied to every problem. And so the expectation gets misplaced when you think that one problem can solve, one program can solve all the problems. Okay, so what are the limitations in the randomness and what are the questions that you can't answer using the, so, the, your, your method? The one, the one thing that is different with methods is that then you can say we, we are going to apply them whenever possible. What it's not very well placed to, to what it's good to, to do is to evaluate the impact of programs that target communities or individuals. What it is less good at, uh, or not good at at all, is to evaluate the impact of macroeconomic policy like uh, exchange rate. One other thing it's not very good at, unless you're extremely patient, is looking at uh, very long-run effect of things. So, for example, what is, uh, if you're interested about the impact of, of that historic, historical circumstances of countries still have today, there's no way you can run an experiment for that. You have to look at what happened in history. And, and those questions are interesting, are, are important, because they are still weighing uh, on these countries today. It needs to be combined with two... two experiments give you uh, the, uh, some parameters of, um, or the effect of individual programs. And if you want to know how things fit together you need probably to combine experiment with some form of modeling. So one of our colleagues, Rob Townsend, does that at at MIT. And that is something which will always need to to happen in addition, but can, I think, be be very, very fruitful. So hopefully that kind of dialogues and sort of that back and forth between the very micro things we are doing and what it all means for the macro economy and the broader evolution of the economies will will continue and that no no amount of experiments will replace thinking about things but let's say there's a big question at the moment what to do about high food prices what you know what could you contribute towards that debate do you think well an, an, an important um, it depends what what we means by what to do so they are uh, uh, to some extent what has produced the high food prices uh why the food prices are high today probably is not something that experiments would easily answer. Uh, what they could help us answer is um, is what are going to be the implications for the poor. 
And in fact, there is a very interesting experiment we talk about in the book by Rob Jensen and Nolan Miller, uh, which is in some sense telling us something about that. By what they did is that they, they made food cheaper in China. They, they exogenously decreased the price of, of rice for some households by uh, giving them vouchers for discount of 10%, 20%, 30% of the price of rice. And what they found was quite striking, which is when the price of rice goes down, people eat less rice, not more rice. Why? Which is, so that's, that's, Why is that? So that's very striking, right? Because there are very few goods like that. Um, and the explanation that they give, which I think is, is quite, is, is, is almost surely correct, is that rice is such an important part of the budget that when the price of rice goes down, you become richer because you have to spend less money on carrying your basic need of rice. Now, what do you do with this extra money? Well, now that you're a bit richer, then you're doing other things than buying rice. So people start buying shrimps or buying things that are not food. This experiment, I think, tells us a little bit of something about what's going to happen to the poor as a function of the increase in, in the food prices, which is what we should bo- worry about when the food prices increase is not only food consumption, but more generally the basket of the whole consumption of the poor. That being too narrowly focused on saying, well, if the food prices increase, then the poor are going to eat less food, might be less the problem than the food prices increase. That's a huge income shock for the poor. Maybe we need to compensate that not by making food cheaper, subsidizing it, but by giving the poor some money. More money, yeah. Okay. Uh, Final question. Throughout this entire interview, you two have been talking very charmingly about matters of theory and policy, and you've also both taken your turns to answer questions. So for the final one, I'm going to ask you both to join in and deal with the grubby matter of British politics. In Britain at the moment, there is a big debate going on within the government about why they should keep on giving so much money towards aid. Although we don't actually give that much money, but the, uh, the argument is, why should aid be special? Why shouldn't it be subject to the same spending cuts as everything else within government spending? Object, you first. What's your answer to that? Well, I think that actually DFID has been at the cutting edge of making aid better. And it would be extremely unfortunate if they were to cut back. And I think it goes to the heart of what I think we forget, which is that aid is a very, very small amount of money in many countries. Uh, DFID, a big country for DFID is India. It's a drop in the Indian sort of fisc, uh, the amount of money that DFID brings. What it brings is sharp thinking, willingness to ask questions, willingness to experiment, willingness to push people a little further uh, outside their comfort zone. This is the kind of thing that the fact that they come with a checkbook and but also with some you know clear non-electoral objective is is very important that they they're, they're in a way they're in a position to push for things which I, I think that are very difficult for politicians because they can say, look, you know, Try, try, try this uh, out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at least we let, we've tried it. If it works, it's great. A politician is much harder for him to say, "Look, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work," because you know he, his opponent is going to immediately say that you know you 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 uh, you tried that. I mean, what a stupid idea. Uh, so it, I think that the natural dynamics of the political system pushes against innovation and i think one of the great leverage points the you know the great uh, big donor agencies and the great foundations have is that they can actually fund 
kind of more risky things. And it would be, I think as the world gets more and more comfortable with the idea that more risky things need to be tried, it would be tragic if uh, funding for that dries up. Esther, that's a very good answer. But if I were to publish out in a right-wing blog, everyone would say that's the, that what Objit is describing is the white technocrat's burden. Well, I think it's, um, at a moral level, I think it's everybody's burden that, you know, you have uh, a responsibility to, we have a responsibility to, to help people in, in need in this country and in, in, in other countries as well. The fact that they are in other countries doesn't make, make it more better, in my view. It's just the same thing. It's everybody's burden. I think people tend to vastly overestimate how much aid their country government give. When you ask people in the street how much money do you think they give, they are flabbergasted when you tell them that actually it's quite less than a percent. And if they knew how much is being spent, they probably wouldn't think that cutting aid is like the biggest priority because they realize that the other part of it is is the is the amount of of influence that this small amount of money, relatively small amount of money that uh, the FID is spending buys you is extremely good value. This is because of what Abhijit just said, which is, you know, even in, in, in African countries, aid represents a very small part of the budget. But by giving a little bit of budget support, you get something to say about the entire budget, really. And hopefully it's something smart to say. And when you have an organization like DFID, which is a smart organization and which is in a sense placed to produce knowledge uh, that can be used by the developing countries, both the ones that DFID support and even those that DFID doesn't support, then you get an enormous amount of leverage for that fairly small amount of money. So we this country contributes to to global knowledge in various ways. You can think of the aid as being a way a way to do that. Obajit Banerjee and Esther Deflo there. Poor Economics is published by Perseus and is out now in hardback. That's all we've got time for this week. Leave your thoughts on this week's programme on our blog. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakraborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.